Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1. I greet you in the name of the Lord. I welcome you on this Lord's Day as we continue our study through the book of Genesis chapter. Today we are in the seventh chapter of the book of Genesis chapter 7 verse 1. This is God's holy and inspired word. Please give it your full attention. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep for their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come before you in the name of your Son and in the power and strength of your Holy Spirit. And we do ask this morning that you would accompany us as we listen to your word. We pray that you would give listening to our ears, understanding to our minds and believing to our hearts and that you, by your spirit, would help us to obey all that we hear today, not because it is the words of a man or the opinion of a man, but because it is your holy word. Lord, I decrease so that you may increase, be glorified in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Please, please be seated. The last time that we gathered to consider the book of Genesis we examined the remaining verses of the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis. We first saw that judgment was at the doorstep of the people of Noah's day. The earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way. God was going to, therefore, corrupt the earth. God was going to destroy what man had destroyed. Man has done this. We learned this last week. Man is not the victim of corruption on the earth. Man is the cause of corruption on the earth. And I I would like you to think for a moment. What has man corrupted? Pause and think about that question. What has man corrupted? Was the earth a desolate wasteland? At the time of Noah's day, did flowers not grow, blossom, bloom? At the time of Noah's day, were were not the hills painted green with grass? At the time of Noah's day, did not birds sing? Did not the sun shine and did not stars twinkle at night? Of course they did. So then, what was truly and really corrupted? Man was corrupted. This corruption entailed every, and we must emphasize the word every, every kind of vice in man and against man. Man was devouring man. Man corrupted his way with continual evil and wickedness in his heart towards who? Towards man. Into whose image is man created? God's. Man is created in God's image. 
Man has corrupted his way, and by corrupting his way, he's also marred the holy image that he was created in, the image of God. Man has defiled the image that he was created in. Man has sought to, to practice violence against all other image bearers of God. Why? As has been mentioned before in our teachings, man by nature is a, a hater of God. Man by nature is a rebel against God. Man cannot destroy God. So man will attempt to destroy the image, those who are made in God's image, fellow man, by murdering image bearers of God. There is so much to the judgment of God. It is a display of the holiness of God. It is a result of the wickedness of man. But it is also a sobering example Of the extent to which man has gone to display his hatred for God. And at the same time, the extent to which God has determined to rescue his own image from the corruption of man. By rescuing, preserving righteous Noah. Judgment was coming. But judgment, as we learned last week, did not come on the day that God pronounced that judgment wouldn't come. Rather, God was patient. God was forbearing. The Lord used Noah to be a, an evangelist to that wicked generation for 120 years as he called people to escape the coming judgment of God by, by entering the only means of escaping judgment, by entering the ark. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He preached righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for that, for that is the only way that man has ever been able to be righteous. And he preached And as he preached, God was patient with that generation. God allowed them to hear the gospel. He held back his justice until the appointed time. And we learn that the Lord is patient with his elect. He is not willing that any of his sheep will suffer under the persecution or the punishment reserved for the wicked. Rather, all those God has foreknown and foreloved before the foundation of the world will be, shall be brought into his fold. Noah called them to enter the only means by which they could be saved, the ark. And we learn that the ark was a type of Christ. There was only one ark. One way by which men could escape the judgment of God and be saved. And as it is with, as it is with Christ, there is only one way we can be saved. And that is through Christ and through Christ alone. There was but one door by which men could enter the ark. As it is with Christ, he is the door. No one enters some other way. It is only through Christ that we are saved. The ark was covered with pitch so that the judgment waters would not swallow up the righteous. And so it is with Christ. He has atoned or covered us with pitch, his blood, so that the judgment of God would not swallow us up on that judgment day. And what a dreadful day it will be. For those who are not in the ark. For those who are not in Christ. And if you are in Christ. If you are are in the ark as it were. Then you are secure in Christ. You are safe in Christ. The judgment shall not come nigh thee. And now. Today with God's help we shall consider the first five verses of the seventh chapter. And I do have just two points for you this morning. Number one. The testing. Of Noah's faith. The testing. Of Noah's faith. In conversations this past week. 
the subject of Noah's life, arose once again. And I am thankful for it. More specifically, the the blamelessness of Noah. Chapter 6, verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah was a partaker in the grace of God. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God graciously chose to, to give saving grace to Noah. Noah was given faith to believe in the promise of God. That the rest giver would come. That the seed of the woman would come. Live a righteous life that Noah could never offer on behalf of his people. Crush the head of the, of the devil in the process. And bring his people into an eternal rest or an eternal Sabbath. Noah was given faith to believe the message or the, the gospel, the evangelium. That was first preached in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And because of Noah's God-given faith, Noah was declared righteous by God. Are you with me? Okay. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him, accredited to him or accounted to him as righteousness. So to Noah believed God. And because of his faith in God, Noah had a right standing with God. Are you with me? Noah was a righteous man. How? By faith. As it is for all who trust in Christ, by faith, we are declared righteous by God. Not not trusting in ourselves, but trusting in Christ. Why? Because all men lack righteousness. Because all have disobeyed God's law. All have offended the righteous God, our righteous God. All men are unrighteous before God because we have violated God's law. God gave Noah faith to believe, not in his own righteousness. Listen. But in the righteousness of another. Therefore, righteousness was imputed to Noah or accredited to Noah. Noah's life, therefore, reflected this true saving faith. The life of Noah exemplified that he was a he was regenerated by the Holy Spirit because the scriptures declare that Noah was blameless. Now. Noah was blameless, both in his standing before God Innocent. Because an innocent one, because an innocent one would stand in his place. And Noah was also blameless before men. You got that? Noah was blameless before God. This was God's declaration of Noah because Noah placed his faith in God. That's number one. Noah was blameless before God. Innocent. But God also declares that Noah was blameless. This is, this is important. Noah was blameless before man. This is the estimation of Noah or the judgment of Noah from God. Noah was blameless in his generation. The blamelessness of Noah was a result of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit upon Noah. Because of Noah's faith, Noah's faith was genuine. He lived among a corrupt people and yet he was uncorrupted because his faith was genuine. Are you with me? We have already noted that this is not to say that Noah was perfect. There has been none who was perfect except for Christ. But God declares truly that Noah was blameless in his generation. Before God, in God's eyes, Noah had done no wrong to his neighbors. Listen, beginning in chapter 6. And now we are in chapter 7. 
the, the righteousness or the blameless of Noah is once again pronounced by God in chapter 7. The Bible says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 7, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Brothers and sisters, what is so significant about that? Haven't we already made the point that Noah was blameless? Well, we made the point in chapter 6. And now we are making the point, or God is making the point once again in chapter 7. What's the big deal? The big deal is that a 100 years have passed. And the pronouncement that God gave upon Noah when he was 500, that he was righteous, blameless, that Noah walked with God, is the same declaration, the same estimation, the same pronouncement that God makes upon Noah 100 years later. Noah, you are still blameless in this generation after 100 years. Now, have you ever considered what the time was like, what the life was like during that 100 years of walking with God for Noah? When God called him at the age of 500 to to build an ark because he was going to judge the world. And then God says to him at the age of 600, when the ark is complete, well done, Noah. Well done. Now go into the ark, Noah. Judgment is coming, Noah. God may have spoken to Noah at other times and in different ways. But for the sake of this point, we only have God speaking to Noah at the age of 500. And then God speaking again to Noah at the age of 600. A hundred to 120 years have passed. And, and, and what was the life like for Noah during those 100 to 120 years? Noah was given insight into the plans and purpose of Almighty God. In all likelihood, his father Lamech and his father grandfather Methuselah were still alive. And it is very likely that Noah communicated what God had said to those patriarchs. And it is even more likely that they encouraged him, Noah, to obey what God had said. Noah had been given a warning from God. Noah knew that there was there was a way to be saved from this judgment. Place your faith in the word of God and act upon it. Turn from your sin into the ark. Come and be saved from the judgment. Place your faith in the promise that rest or a rest giver will come. It is the message or the gospel Though not fully developed, because Revelation was still not fully developed, but it was passed on to Noah from the patriarchs. It was the gospel that Lamech preached. It was the gospel that Methuselah preached. It was the gospel that Enoch preached. And now it has reached the ears of Noah. Noah has heard, and by the grace of God, he believes. And now Noah is preaching that message to all who have ears to hear. Judgment is coming. Turn from your sins. Turn in faith to God. And while he was preaching during this 100 years, he's working. He's cutting down cedar wood. He, he's forming and sh- he didn't get he didn't get to go to Lowe's. There was no Home Depot. Noah did this work, this hard work of cutting down trees, of forming and shaping the trees so, so that he is now forming and shaping the, the skeleton or the bones of, of what would be, not a boat, but a box. A floating box. 
unlike the world has ever seen up until that time. He's he's framing the structure. He is gathering the pitch. He's collecting the nails. He is ordering and framing the rooms. And let me ask you, do you think that this 100 to 120 years was were years of ease or years of pain for Noah? There is not one person in this room who's even close to 100, maybe someone. How do you feel when you wake up? Noah's 500 years old and he needs to go cut down wood. He was a human being. We, we must not superhumanize these individuals. He was a human being who was doing actual work. We can assume, though God may have, we can assume that God had not spoken to Noah for 100 years. Noah, are you sure God spoke to you? Are you sure this is not something that you have just conjured up in your own mind? Surely this is an extremely wild claim that you are making. God will destroy the, the world by flood. And let me just say as a side note, I'm not of the opinion that, that rain never occurred on the earth prior to the flood. I believe it did rain. I believe that rain was a natural occurrence. God wasn't talking about rain. God wasn't saying, hey, guess what, it's going to rain. God was speaking of a worldwide flood. Of, of, of a deluge, as the old theologians would say. God was speaking of, of continual shower, overwhelming tsunami, water raising from the ground. Quite a different experience than your average rain. Noah preached this coming judgment. Noah was blameless in his generation. But this is the declaration of God, not the declaration of the people of Noah's day. Do you believe that the people of Noah's day were kind to Noah and his family for 120 years. You think they were kind to them? You think they, they simply let Noah be? Oh, that's just crazy, Noah. Noah's not leaving them alone. Noah's calling them to repent. Why would they leave him alone? The scriptures declare that this was a wicked, corrupt, violent generation. Do you believe that they simply let Noah work, let Noah preach for 100 years without any opposition? We live in a wicked, corrupt world. And we are often afraid to speak of our own faith on our job out of fear of opposition. What do you think it was like for Noah? It is beyond safe to say that the people of Noah's generation hated Noah, reviled Noah to the core, hated Noah. Every word he said and every word that every deed that he did. Can we fathom the opposition that Noah encountered? Can, can we fathom how he was ridiculed for righteousness sake? Can, can we comprehend the persecution that he endured from the wicked all the while, all the while mercifully calling them to turn from their sins? You would think, as we do, that if someone opposes you, we curse them to their face. We, we, as it were, shake the dust off of our feet and say no more to them. Noah preached righteousness and continued to preach righteousness for 100 years without ceasing. The message of Noah and the life that followed were a continual reminder 
of what those wicked people knew in their hearts, that they were rebels against God, that they deserved just punishment from God. And yet Noah continued to work on building the ark. Noah continued to preach righteousness. Why? Because this was Noah's task. And this was also Noah's test. Not just Noah's task. But also Noah's test. God says, do this. And here's the test. Will you do it? We make much of Noah's ark, and we should. It's a phenomenon. But we often overlook Noah's test. Noah's test of faith. We are familiar with the testing of Job. Very familiar with it. We're familiar with the testing of Joseph. Very familiar with it. We're familiar with the testing of Abraham, but we often fail to acknowledge and overlook the testing of Noah. God tested that man of God longer than any of those other men of God. For 100 years, Noah's faith was tested in a generation that, that was so vile and wicked that the judgment of God would come and sweep them away. And he did so virtually alone. But Noah would not be swept away with that generation. Because in the time of testing, his faith was shown to be genuine. Noah's faith did not turn to ash. Under the intense heat of persecution. Noah's faith did not, did not crumble under the immense weight of opposition. But Noah stood firmly, firmly convinced that what God had said he would perform. What will be said of you? You who profess Christ. What will be said of you in the day of intense heat and immense weight? Will your faith be proven as pure gold or will it be exposed as mere brass? Will you stand or will you crumble? Second Timothy three twelve. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ. Might be persecuted. Sorry. All who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. The Lord Jesus Christ said, in this world you will have tribulation. But ask yourself, and I'm sure Noah was asking himself, what is the purpose of persecution? What is the purpose of tribulation? Let me ask you, is it meaningless? Is persecution meaningless? Is opposition and tribulation, is it all meaningless? Or will not God use all of these things for his glory? Will not God make all things work together for good, even if it is done by the wicked for evil's sake? Yes. And amen. Then what is the good? What's the good? God think God works all things together for the good. What is the good? What's the purpose? The good that comes out of persecution, tribulation. First Peter, as Pastor John will be teaching in this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What's the purpose of that? Peter tells us so that the testing, the tested genuineness of your faith. 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The purpose of the testing, the purpose of the testing of your faith is so that your faith may be proven genuine, so that you may, may give God much praise, much glory, and much honor by standing under, under opposition or, or in spite of opposition, not folding in, in when the opposition comes, but standing strong. So then what must we do when our faith is tested? The Apostle Paul tells us. It is for discipline, Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you must endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whose father does not discipline? You would be a derelict father if you do not discipline your son. If you do not discipline your children. When faith is tested, Paul says God is treating you as his son. Therefore, endure it because it is for your good and for his glory. Bear it. Suffer through it. Press on in spite of the difficulty. And that doesn't mean just live. It doesn't just mean, well, I'm going to wake up again and here we go. It is a type of living that is obeying in spite of the difficulty that obedience brings. You hear that? It is good for you. It is for God's glory. So endure it. Keep obeying. It is quite possible that, that the greatest test of Noah's faith came at the 600th year of Noah's life when God called Noah once again. What do you mean? The greatest test. We've talked about a hundred years of testing. There's a greater test. What were the words of God when he spoke to Noah once again after 100 years? What were those first words? Verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, here's the first words. Go into the ark. <sighs> Go into the ark. You and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. How is that a test? The Lord God commanded Noah, go into the ark. You may recall that the ark was not a boat. It was not a cruise liner. Prepared for a vacation. It was a box. And listen to this. And its dimensions, as said by Nehemiah Cox and John Calvin, were, were really, really more that of a coffin. Fit for a man to die. You hear that? So then what was the greatest test of Noah's faith? The great test of Noah's faith was not so much building the ark. Although that was a great test. The great test of Noah's faith was not so much enduring the persecution and standing in spite of opposition. Those, though, those were great tests. The greatest test of Noah's faith when, was when God commanded Noah to bid farewell to this world. To bid for farewell to this world as he knew it and enter the ark, a coffin that was fit for death. But I thought he was going to live. Yes. But in order to live, Noah had to die to this world. In order for Noah's life to be preserved, he had to die to this world as he knew it. If he sought to save his life as he knew it, he must die to this world. 
But if he lost his life by entering the ark, by entering Christ, he would find it anew. And this once again points us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When it was time for our Lord to leave this world and to make his way toward the cross, he set his face like flint and went to the cross undeterred. For our Lord, although he was persecuted unto death, suffered and endured for righteousness sake, was obedient all the way to the cross, knowing that his death would bring him glory and that he would bring many sons to glory along with him. Noah's faith was tested. And it was tested all the way to the completion of the ark. And his life and the lives of his family were spared. Not in a salvific way. He did not save the souls of his family. He saved the physical lives of his family. Christ lived in perfect obedience all the way to the cross. And he saves, he saves the souls of his children. A greater salvation. A greater redemption. What will be said of your faith in the time of testing? Secondly. True faith is displayed in obedience to God's law. True faith is expressed, displayed in obedience to God's law. Genesis chapter 7 and verse 2. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did. All that the Lord commanded him to do. The Lord commanded Noah to take both clean and unclean animals, which points to the fact that there was more information from God about which animals were clean and which animals were not clean. This was possibly passed down from Adam and displayed most clearly as was preached in God's acceptance of Abel's offering and God's rejection of Cain's offering. The Lord spoke to Noah on the Sabbath. Did you see that? The seventh day. To make preparations for a judgment that would come the following Sabbath. The following seven days. Seven days from now, he says. Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. You and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. As far as we can tell, again, the Lord called Noah at the age of 500. Noah found favor with God. Noah was given saving faith by God. Noah walked with God and lived in accordance with his faith. How does one live in accordance, in step with their faith? Does one simply say, I have faith? My son does that often when we are doing family worship together. You must place your faith in Christ, son. I I place my faith in Christ. Is that all that is necessary? Is is that true living faith? Is salvific faith merely, listen, spoken faith? No. James chapter 2 and verse 18. Show me your faith apart from works. And I will show you my faith by my works. 
It was a statement like this that caused Martin Luther to, to want to extract James from the Bible. Why? Because it would appear that James is advocating for a type of works righteousness. It would appear that James is preaching a works gospel, which is no gospel at all. This cannot be, though. Why? Because it would contradict Scripture. So then what is James advocating? James is advocating a faith that is not mere lip service, but one that lives in accordance to the law of God as evidence that you have truly been brought from death to life. Are you are you hearing me? How did Noah display that he was truly a partaker of the grace of God? For 120 years, Noah walked in obedience to the law of God. Noah's faith was tested. And through the testing, Noah obeyed the commands of God. Now, we have just spoken about the, the, the testing of Noah's faith. The testing of Noah's faith took place as Noah was busy obeying God's law. You see that? The testing of Noah's faith took place while Noah was busy. Busy doing what? Busy doing what God had said. Noah was obediently obeying the command of God to build the ark. The building of the ark was simply one of the means that the Lord used to refine the faith of Noah during that 100 years. As Noah obediently built the ark, his faith was being built and established on the law of God. And as he built, he loved his neighbor as he loved himself. For that is God's command. How did he love his neighbor? He preached righteousness to his neighbor. His neighbor was wicked. His neighbor was corrupt and violent. And the most loving thing that Noah could do, the, 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 the greatest way that Noah could show that he loved his neighbor was by calling his neighbor to repent of their sins. Well, that's offensive. Not to the neighbor. It's offensive to God that the neighbor was a sinner. That's the offense. It, it, it was loving. To call his neighbor to repent of his sins. Do you realize that? That to call sinners who are rejecting God to repent of their sins is not an offensive thing to do. It's a loving thing to do. We tend to only think about offending sinners, but we fail to acknowledge that God has been offended. We are so worried about offending one another. We, we, we fail to acknowledge God has been offended. Noah obeyed the call to be a preacher of righteousness and all that comes with living by faith as he built. Noah had no other gods before him. As he built, Noah did not take God's name in vain. As he built, Noah did not worship idols. As he built, Noah kept the Sabbath. As he built, he honored his parents. He did not murder. He did not commit adultery. He did not steal. He did not lie. He did not covet. Noah obeyed the commands of God to build. As Noah's faith was being built on the law of God that was written on his heart. Did Noah keep his law? Did Noah keep God's law in order to be justified before God? No. Noah kept God's law because he was justified before God. There appears to be not only in this church, but in the general body of Christ, a misunderstanding this is very important between the relationship of the law and the gospel. 
There, there, there appears to be a misunderstanding of the connection between the law and the gospel. What is the connection, if there is any connection at all? Brothers and sisters, if you're taking notes, write this down. The law and the gospel are complementary. They are not contradictory. The law and the gospel are complementary. They are not contradictory. The Bible says in 1 John 5, 1 through 4, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves God or loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, we obey his commands. For this is the love of God. Here it is. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments for his children are not burdensome. Can one simply say, I have faith? John says, no. John says, true love, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and that his commandments are not burdensome. Brothers and sisters, law and gospel, gospel and law are the heart and soul of the Christian life. The law of God is a light for the believer in this dark and increasingly dark world. Obedience to God's law is evidence that we love God and that we are the children of God. The commandments of God are not burdensome for God's children. They are a delight and a protection against worldliness. It was God's law that instructed Noah. That gave him sight amidst the darkness of the dark world he was living in. Noah would say along with the psalmist. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Your word, your law is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's law burned within the soul of Noah. And it was never without oil. Noah, filled filled with the Holy Spirit, did not view God's law as repulsive, but as a delight. He said, or he would agree with the psalmist, how sweet are your words or, or, or is your law to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. God's word, God's law. Brothers and sisters, do you echo the words of the psalmist concerning the law of God or do you shriek at even the phrase law of God? One may say, but I thought we were no longer under the law. That we were under grace. I'll give you the scripture if you're wondering. Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. What about that passage, pastor? Do something about that. This is often what most quote when any talk of law is brought up. Let me ask you a question. Is the apostle saying we are no longer obligated to obey any laws? Let me ask you another question. Does anyone really live that way? Even when you leave, even you say, I, I, I have want nothing to do with law. You'll still stop at the red light. You'll still, most of you, not Anthony, you still will obey the speed limit. Or Isaiah, you're not going to get away either. Or me. Paul is not making a case for antinomianism. Lawlessness, on the contrary. This is a very important. The apostle is making a distinction between the application of the law for the unbeliever and the application of the law for the believer. How does the law apply to the unbeliever? Very important. 
For the unbeliever, the law is all that God commanded for his people without exception. It is universal. All people must must uh, obey this because it has been written on their hearts. And that which is written on your hearts is summed up in the Ten Commandments of God. This is the point that the Apostle Paul is making in Romans chapter one, verses through uh, chapter one through three. When he speaks of the law that is written in stone given to the Jews and the law that is written on the hearts of the of the Gentiles that they obey by nature. Paul's point is they're obeying the same law. One has it in stone. It is codified in stone, written in stone. One has it on his heart, but they are both by nature doing the same thing. One is obeying a codified law. One is obeying a law written on his heart. Why? Because God has written on everyone's heart. All men must obey this. All men live in accordance to God's law. And listen, for the unbeliever, listen, all people owe obedience to God's law. All men are born under God's law and also born under the broken covenant of works. When Adam broke the covenant of works, what was the result? Sin and condemnation. Are you with me? All men are born under the condemnation of the broken covenant of works. That's how the law applies to the unbeliever. Now, the gospel is the good news of salvation freely offered and granted to all who believe in Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the covenant of redemption and also fulfilled the covenant, his own covenant of works through perfect obedience by accomplishing the covenant of redemption. All men live in accordance with the law of God. But there was one problem. Here's here's for the unbeliever. Here's your problem. Unbeliever. Listen, listen, listen. For the unbeliever, the law can't save you. That's the problem. Now, listen, we're talking about application of a law for the believer and for the unbeliever. Right now, for the unbeliever, you are under the law. The law can't save you. That's the problem. Unbelievers are obeying a law, a command that offers you no help. That promises you no reward because the covenant has already been broken. So the covenant of works no longer works. For the unbeliever, the law only condemns. The law says, do this. And it condemns you when you don't. And even if you did it, you're still condemned. That's the hopelessness of the law for the unbeliever. The law will not change. The law is perfect. It does not need to change. We need to change. The law is the perfect reflection of the righteous standards of God upon his creation. The law is also a a perfect reflection of the holiness of God. It will not change. It does not need to change. It is good. It is right. We need to change. We have violated his law. The law is not bad. We are bad. The law discovers. Think about that. It's like an investigator. It's a private investigator. The ones you hate, right? The law discovers. The law reveals the sinfulness of mankind. But but also, this is what it does. But it offers you no good news. It says you're going to jail. Forever. (laughs) Because we are sinful. The law only offers judgment. That's the bad news. That's the bad news. Each time the brothers go out to the park and sisters go out to the park. That's the bad news. The good news of the gospel is the opposite of the law because it is a free gift of forgiveness and deliverance 
listen, not from the law. Listen, but from the guilt and condemnation of disobeying the law. Are you with me? Brothers and sisters, a free promise and a condemning and a condemning command are opposite, but they are harmonious opposites because the law shows us the goodness and the purity of God. The law shows us the perfection that Jesus won with his obedience to the law and shows us our hopelessness apart from a savior. Do you see that? The law shows us here's God's perfect standard. And we say, gosh, well, I can't do that. The law shows us, but Christ did and Christ obeyed it perfectly. If you trust in him, you can be saved. There is no salvation apart from the one who has completed for you what you could never complete. The law is not competing with the gospel. The law is not saying, come this way, ignore Jesus, ignore Christ, be righteous on your own. Because the law is holy. It's not wicked. The law shows us our sinfulness, which compels us, pushes us, drives us. To Christ, our only way of being saved. The law is not the gospel for the unbeliever. The command is not the promise. Therefore, the unbeliever needs the gospel because the law cannot save them. The unbeliever needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, so that they can be saved from their unrighteousness and from the righteous judgment of God upon their violation or because of their violation of the law. The law demands, but the gospel delivers. The law expects you to come with your hands full of your works. How much have you done? The gospel calls you to come with empty hands to receive from another. The law is unforgiving. The gospel is forgiving. The law and the gospel for the unbeliever. This is it. They need the gospel or they will be condemned. Now, for the believer, the law and the gospel take on a different application. And we would even switch out their order rather than law and gospel gospel and the law because the christian life begins with the gospel the christian life bids us to come be saved from the the wicked sinfulness of your heart be saved from the condemnation because of you because you have violated god's law and then we come in faith by the grace of god by the spirit of god and as we come The gospel then brings us back to the law. But listen, for you were saying, but I thought I wasn't under the law. But the law, not as your judge, but as your guide. Not as a threat, but now as your protector. This is how you are no longer under the law. You are no longer under its condemnation. But not so that you can have no law. Being filled with the love of God. And if you love God, we express our love for God by living in accordance to the law of God. As children of God. John said, for this is love of God, that we keep his commandments, for we are his children and his commandments are not burdensome. For the believer, the law and the gospel or the gospel and the law, listen, are not harmonious opposites. 
They are harmonious compliments. Compliments in terms that they belong together. The gospel tells us who we are in Christ. Listen, 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 listen. And the law tells us how we are to live in light of who we are in Christ. You hear that? The gospel tells us our identity in Christ. The law tells us how we are to now live if we are truly in Christ. The connection of identity and living is consistently taught throughout the scriptures, especially in the epistles that begin with our our identity in Christ and then conclude with the way that we are to live in light of our identity that we now have in Christ. Take, for example, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. If you have been raised with Christ, seek things above. And then just a few verses later, put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you. Here's your identity in Christ. Now, while you live here, put to death these things. And there is a long list that are in opposition to what God has commanded in his law. The Christian life is the gospel that is lived out according to God's law. John says the children of God, because they are the children of God, live according to the commands of God. They live in accordance to the commands of God because it is now their identity. Brothers and sisters, we do not speak about the law and the gospel for believers in the same way that we speak about the law and gospel for, for, for unbelievers. And I think that is where we often make our mistake. That we're not making proper categories for who the law applies to and how it applies to them. For the unbeliever, we say, the law can show you your sin, so turn to Christ in the gospel. For the believer, the law does not or does indeed continue to show us our sinfulness. But it can no longer condemn us. But it is our guide on how we are to live. I want to read something to you. It is from our confession. And if you get a chance, maybe read it later. Chapter 19, paragraph 6. Listen closely. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be therefore justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others. And that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts and lives. So examining themselves thereby. They may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin. Together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience, it is likewise of use to regenerate, to restrain their corruptions, and that it forbids sin, that the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect from them, although freed from the curse and the unalloyed rigor thereof the promise of it likewise show them god's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof though not due to them by the law of a, as a covenant of works as man's doing good and refraining from evil for the law encourageth to the one and deterreth from the other is no evidence of being under law and not under grace What? Just because we are not trying to be justified by the law does not mean that we have nothing to do with the law. Why? Why does the law show us our corruption? Why why, must we still preach God's law? 
the more believers are exposed to remaining sin, the more we could put to death remaining sin by the power of God. The more we can mortify the flesh. Or are you comfortable with where you are? Are you happy with where you are? And how do you expect to be more sanctified unless you are exposed to God's word? What will expose you? Just you in your own mind thinking what you should do and what is right? Or has God prescribed for you how you should live? Yes, he has. The law does not tell us you are bad. You should feel bad because you are bad. The law says we are sinful, but we have a savior and his obedience is perfect. The law shows us our corruption in order to push us closer to Christ, not further away. It is complementary, not contradictory to the gospel. The law tells us if you sin, there is suffering, even though you are a believer. If you sin as a believer, you can expect bad things to happen in your life. It's true. If you obey, there is blessing. If you obey, there is blessing not to be justified, not to be condemned. But as a as a form of discipline from God in this life, God disciplines and corrects his disobedient children. The Lord blesses his obedient children. As a father. What our confession is saying is to obey because what our confession is saying is to obey because you have been commanded is not a bad thing. You hear that? To obey because you have been commanded is not a bad thing. It's not to say, well, well, now I'm under the law. No, you are still under grace. But you have been you are obeying because you've been told to. And because you love God, you will. To obey is not to be under law. It is still you are under grace because why? Because you won't be condemned when you fail. That's why you're still under grace. Now, if you say, well, now I feel condemned. Well, maybe you're not under grace. Maybe you're not under grace. I don't know. If you're rejecting law, then maybe you're not his child. Because his children don't see this as burdensome. They love God's law. They, they want God's law. Show me how to be better. Show me how to glorify you more. I want this in my life. I need this in my life. How is it that all these commands could fit with a gospel promise? Because they restrain our corruptions. They show us our corruptions in showing us how we are to live. God does not command so that we might earn his favor. God commands because we have earned his favor, because we have been granted his favor, not earned, but granted his favor. That's why God commands. God has given us grace so that we must serve him and obey him. Serve him in ways that he is regulated in his word. We have everything in Christ. Now live this way. Not live this way and then I will give you everything. That's legalism. That's the law. But you have everything. Now live in accordance to who you are in Christ. Can I truly say I'm a Christian? I'll go to church when I want to though. Can I truly say, can we truly say, I'm a Christian. I'll become a member if, if I want to. I'm a Christian. I have faith. I'll be submitted to the members and elders if I want to. I will forgive if I want to. I'll be baptized if I want to. I'll take the Lord's Supper if I want to. I'll observe the Lord's Day Sabbath if I want to. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. You are a fool. 
And that is antinomianism. That is a people showing that they do not live under God's law. They live under their own law. They make their own rules. You are going to live under one of two laws. It is either going to be your way or God's way. There is a safer, more sure path. This is a sure path and safe. This is a path of destruction. It is the blind walking amongst the blind. And they both, as scripture says, fall into the pit. Imagine if God came to Noah, gave him the instructions of the ark, but Noah said, you know what? Uh, That's a little bit too big. Let's tweak the size. Cedar wood, that's eh, really hard to chop down. Let's use some mahogany. No. God gave Noah the commands. Noah obeyed the commands. Why? Mahogany, by the way, would sink. Why? Because Noah had been given grace by God. Noah then lived in accordance to what God commanded. This is the love of God that we keep his commands. Noah did not adjust God's law. Nor did Noah need time to adjust to God's law. Noah did not rationalize God's law. Noah did not debate God's law. And Noah, sure as heck, did not claim God to be legalistic. Why? He wasn't earning salvation. He was obeying in accordance with salvation. And in the process of saving lives, not souls... He obeys God's commands. Noah would testify that God was merciful. And that God's law was a delight to him. And it was not legalism. Here's legalism. Legalism is all your kids must be homeschooled from now on. Or else you're going to go to hell. Legalism is you must only read the King James Version Bible or you are all going to hell. That's legalism. Legalism is you must all root for the Golden State Warriors or else you're going to hell. Last one might be true. No, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I'm sorry, all you Laker fans. I'm only scared of one of you Laker fans. The one over there. That's legalism. No one can place laws on you that God has not commanded. No, we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Christ has given a torch A torch for his people to carry as they sojourn through this temporary dark world. And that torch is his law. Noah carried that torch high for 100 years. Longer than most of us will ever see. He walked with God in obedience to the commands of God. Carrying high that torch. A life absent of that torch will always wander into the darkness of sin. How will they find their way through the darkness? How can they navigate their way without the light of God's word for their path? Will you continue? As that torch is burning to add layers. That it might burn brighter. Or will you be put off by the brightness of God's law? And fail to keep it lit. Will you say this is as much light as I need. Or do you want to see all the circumference around you? Any of you guys like the dark? My son has these little Super Mario toys. And there are times at night when I will get up 
in a sleeping stupor. To turn the air down or to turn the air up. And I will step on Bowser and Bowser Jr. If you don't know who Bowser and Bowser Jr. are, they are these turtle-like creatures that have spiky shells on their backs. And it is painful. And I've learned that if I'm going to walk to the living room or walk through the hallway, I must have a light with me. Or I will, my feet will be in grave pain. Silly example. But when a pastor or elder or a member calls you to obey God's word, will you be offended? Will you be pained? Or you, will you be grateful that they have warned you? There are areas that God has commanded for our lives that we must avoid so that we can avoid pain. So that we can avoid hardship. There is danger ahead of you. Your light must be brighter so that you can see. Just as Noah was called to obey God's word in his day, and it was a test of his faith, so we are called to obey God's word, and it is a test of our faith. Let us not say, well, well, I'll wait for God to make me obey. Rubbish. Do it. If you hear God's word, do not harden your hearts. Do it. Don't say, I'll wait for him to do it in me. Foolishness. Do it. Will we bristle back when the law of God is applied to our lives? Will we, will we be upset with a doctor who says we have a sickness and it is the result of our own, our own doing? Or we will, will we praise God for the wisdom of the doctor and the boldness of the doctor to say you're sick? Here's what will make you well. If we want pastors who will only ever prescribe to us the sweetness of the gospel, then we don't want pastors. If we want to only ever leave the doctor's office with a lollipop, And not be told that we actually need surgery sometimes. And this will save your life. Then we don't want pastors. We don't want fellow church members. We're not serious about the commitments we make when we, when we actually join this church. And those who present God's law to you like I'm doing this morning, we're not unkind. What was the most loving thing that Noah could do for his neighbors? This is what God said. You know that if God did not say this in his word, I would have nothing to say to you this morning. This is not harsh. It's not unloving. It's not legalistic. It's actually compassionate. It's also applying to myself. It's loving, not unloving. It's grace, not legalistic. Imagine if you did not know God's law. How would you live? We are faithful friends and pastors to you who love you enough to present to you God's word. Our faith will be tested. And when it is, will we obey God's law? I pray for your sakes that you do. For God's glory and for your good. Let's pray.